0: So last week, we talked about being in Christ, right? That that first section, he says to the saints, in Ephesus, faithful in Christ. And then throughout this whole section, there's all these other uh, little prepositional phrases, in Christ, in the beloved. And it's like Paul's almost obsessed with this idea of being in Christ, which last week we saw uh, is being united to Christ, and that being united to Christ leads to all of the other spiritual blessings. There's no justification without union with Christ. Uh, there's no sanctification without union with Christ. There's no adoption without union with Christ Jesus. Now, as we think of that, as people united to Christ Jesus, Christians, believers, Jesus people, look at your inner man. Look inside and ask yourself this question. What do I need the most? And then we, we could even look out these windows to the world and we can ask the same question. What does the world need the most? And, and then ask this question. Has it changed since the writing of this letter to the Ephesians? Is the need different in our time or is the need the same? You know, I think of the Ephesians, and you can read about them in the book of Acts, and they're almost like spiritual zombies, right? There's this spirituality going on throughout the entire city of Ephesus, shrines, um, idols, statues, all for the purpose of worship. Uh, Even in Ephesus was the great temple to Diana, larger than a football field. It's like a great massive place of worship. Even, even to the point where their economy was built around worship. And you see that when the Apostle Paul comes and plants churches in Ephesus, that it actually disrupts the economy. Uh, but with all this spirituality, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in the Christ. And it ends up being a false, dead spirituality. There's things going on. There's worship and praise all throughout Ephesus, but until the gospel gets there, it's like this zombie spirituality. There's movement, but no life in it. And actually, I think it kind of sounds like art time. Um, in 1990, there was a study done on witchcraft in America, and the, the numbers were in the low thousands of those who professed to be witches. And then just a few years ago, another study done uh, it was published by uh, Newsweek. They said there was 1.5 million people in the U.S. professing to uh, be either witches or being involved in witchcraft. Uh, and if you go on Pinterest or Etsy, it's not very hard to start to find the selling of Uh, amulets or crystals or things like that that are supposed to bring some sort of spiritual value to your life. You see, I think we're a lot like the Ephesians in some ways, and maybe we're even getting more like them as a country. But Paul, um, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he's not actually addressing a certain problem in the church. You remember that in Uh, The church to the Corinthians, when Paul writes to them, he's addressing very particular problems, right? There's this like division going on throughout the church. And some people are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. There's all sorts of um, moral, sexual issues going on in the church. Um, There's a like gross abuse of the sacrament. Or in Galatians, he's talking to the church about Jew-Gentile relationships and what the new covenant looks like. But when he writes to the Ephesians, he's not really addressing that specific of issues. He knows their culture. He administered with them uh, intimately with tears. Um, but he writes to them from Rome under house arrest, uh, almost like he's just sitting down at his desk writing, okay, what is this gospel all about? You know, what's the core of Christianity? Uh, What do I want to remind these Ephesians? And I think that's exactly where we need to go in our modern day and age. Uh, Being like the Ephesians, but the gospel is completely timeless. Uh, I can't say this definitively, but I think if Paul were going to write in our modern day the letter to the Americans or to the Californians or to the saints at Westminster, it would probably look a lot like Ephesians. Because the gospel is timeless. And what we'll see here in this section is that the thing that we need, you and your inner man, the world out there, the thing that the Ephesians needed was to worship Father, Son, and Spirit in Christ, for the works of God in, in salvation. right? There's In this section, we're going to see the work of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, intimate in the salvation of men and women. And what we and our world needs to do is to turn to God and worship Father, Son, and Spirit for what God does in redemption. And I say Father, Son, and Spirit rather than just God, generally, because that's exactly where Paul goes he starts talking about the work of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit, and uh, I think we only have two kids. Or, oh, we got a couple kids back here. Kids, have you ever been to maybe Grandma's house, and you see um, maybe on her shelf, there's a photo album? You ever seen that at Grandma's house? They're a little less common now. Now we have them on our phones, um, but if you went to Grandma's house, and you got a photo album, and... Uh, You would open it up and there might be like different categories, right? Tommy's seventh birthday and there's a bunch of pictures from him and some stamps and things like that. Um, I want us to look at this section of Ephesians like a photo album, okay? We're going to see on the front page of the photo album, it's actually going to be that third verse. uh, uh, or the front cover, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then we're going to see on the first page that, the, that there's this electing work of God the Father. And it's this, through what God the Father does, it shows us a picture of who he is. And then on the second page, there'll be uh, the redeeming work of the Son accomplished in history. That, and it shows us a picture of Jesus and how he is intimate in our salvation. And on the third page, we'll see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men. So we'll turn to page one, the electing work of redemption, which is a picture to us of the Father. And it says in verse four, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And what he's getting at here is this idea of picking, choosing, uh, this choosing, and it's really unto holiness. And even just working through this um, passage this week, it's, it's a really good place to go with our friends that um, say they don't believe in things like election. Uh, but it, proving election isn't really Paul's point here. He kind of assumes it, right? He says, no, you, just as he has been chosen before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame... Before him in love. And it's this idea that these these people are chosen, they're picked out, it's rooted in this time before times. It's, It's rooted before God created time and he chose a specific people. And it's not because, you know, there's this idea that God looked forward and said, oh, those people will choose me, so I'll choose them. It's actually the exact opposite. It's God chose a people, and because of this uh, work in eternity, people in time turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And it doesn't exactly say um, why which elect person was chosen, but it does help us understand that it's all a gracious work. Uh, sometimes we think election is not fair. Why did God choose him and not him? Uh, Which in one sense, it's really not fair because based on our deeds, none of us should have been chosen, which means it's actually, it's fair because God is choosing men and women graciously. It's this idea that uh, aside from the works that you have committed, that I have committed, God in eternity past planned this idea or planned this um, work to choose a people in time and history. Uh, one theologian says he does not try to explain how it was possible for God to do this. He fully realizes that when men are confronted with this manifestation of amazing grace, their only proper response is adoration. See, that's the response of the electing work of God for believers. And it's this being chosen unto holiness to be set apart, which we talked about. Uh, Last week, it's this idea of being a saint. You're set apart. You have this new life, new living. And he chooses unto holiness and unto adoption. It says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. When you pray, our Father, who art in heaven, is it conscious in your mind that, the reason that you call our Father in Heaven Father is because of something that happened before the world began, rooted in eternity, that we call our Father Father because it's rooted in eternity. It's something that I think uh, we should do more often. Uh, Maybe this uh, illustration will help you. We have a uh, situation at our church, a, a family whose um, little son was taken from him by the state for totally bogus reasons, um, and just about a week ago, we rejoiced that he was brought back to the family. And I was thinking about that and thinking about this, and it's almost like this adoption that happens uh, in uh, in the lives of a of a Christian person is kind of like that. There's this rightful ownership, a rightful ownership of the the Bonds family with little Peter. And then there's this great homecoming into the father's house. Have you thought of your election being the starting place of your adoption? That when you first became a Christian, it was a homecoming? If you believe, welcome. Welcome. Your home. And I know that analogy isn't perfect and it might uh, fall apart here or there, but we come home into God's house. And this eternal choosing is unto God's glory. It's, it's as if you read the, the book of Ephesians and it's just, it's moving to glory, to glory, to glory again and again and again to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted. In the beloved. You see, the work of the Father is all about bringing the Trinity glory. Again and again and again. And particularly rooted in election. And this is on the mind of our Lord. Um, You know, the Lord is um, not merely an example, but he certainly is an example for all Christians. And in John 17, as he's having a private prayer meeting with his heavenly father, he says this. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, deep in the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ is this idea that God would receive glory because of this eternal work, this planning together in the Trinity to give a people to the Son. And I hope tonight that we would see that this is something that should profoundly affect our prayer lives, to glorify God for this redeeming work that is rooted in eternity. And then as we take our picture book, our uh, photo album, we turn one page over and we see the accomplished work of redemption, which is a, a picture of the work of the son. It says in him also we have obtained an inheritance in verse 11, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And as we considered just a second ago this idea of being adopted, we have to first consider this idea that um, God adopts a certain certain kind of person. Uh, People like you and me, uh, the weak, the sinful, the needy, the displaced, rebels without a cause, slanderers, God-haters, insubordinate, unworthy, people like you and people like me. And why, or rather how, does God adopt these people? Well, the way that he adopts people like you and me is by blood and by grace. This blood and this grace that we receive. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works, oh sorry, back to seven. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You see, the only reason that we gather tonight and worship truly, the reason that the Ephesians could worship truly as they would uh, read this letter publicly at their worship services, is that there has been bloodshed and grace given out. And it's all in Christ. Uh, and there's this idea that Uh, throughout scripture that there's this blood that has this cleansing effect that makes things uh, right. Um, And there's probably a lot of ways to illustrate it, but I think maybe one of the best ways is just to turn to Revelation chapter 7. In verse 9, uh, we'll see a a picture of what it looks like to have the blood of Christ cleanse people like you and me. In Revelation 9, uh, or sorry, Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in the heavens, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders of the four living creatures. And fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He will sit on the throne. Uh, he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. You see, the whole idea of the blood of Christ washing your sins away is not so you can just get out of hell, but it's so you can get to the place where worship happens. It's so you can worship God eternally because your sins have been forgiven. It's that uh, forgiving, gracious work that brings us together tonight. And it's uh, revealed by this uh, mystery that Paul talks about, which I think is Paul's way of describing the coming of the kingdom of the Christ— Uh, It says uh, in 10, that is, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together uh, in one. Oh, sorry, uh, back up a little bit. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good uh, pleasure, which he purposed in. Himself, And this idea of a, a mystery, I think, can be rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, an idea of a secret that we see uh, in Daniel 2. I don't think we have time to turn there tonight, but we see this idea of this secret in the prophecy of Daniel to the king of Babylon. And it's this idea that's always leading forward to this new kingdom that would come under Messiah. And you see that this mystery is, ends up being one of um, Christian apprehension, uh, not comprehension. You know, e- even being beings who haven't experienced anything outside of time, we think of things like election. And because the Lord comes down to us in his word and, and gives us truth through it and teaches us about it in his word, we can get our arms kind of over election, but not around it. And there's so many gospel truths that are that way where we can come to an apprehension of it, but we can't comprehend fully. We can't ascend to the the greatness of God's mind um, to know God as God knows himself, to know the love of God for sinners like you and me. But we certainly can get ourselves on it and hold on to it and make it ours. And it's revealed to us in this uh, mystery um, and that's how most of our theology often is, And I think what it, what that ends up doing for us, you know, some of the best theologians um, are those who, uh, again and again and again, as they're working through this deep theology, find themselves in the deep waters of God's beauty and knowledge and love, and find that as we get into theology, we just we get to a place that's just too deep for us again and again and again, and there's one proper response, full adoration, worship of God Almighty. Uh, I think it's a mark of Pauline theology, and what I mean by that is theology from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in chapters 9 through 11, Paul's wrestling with this idea of Um, God and uh, him being just and and this idea of election and this work of um, God in this New Testament church, but also not seeing some of the Jews turning to Christ. And as he's wrestling through this in the book of Romans, he gets to a place where he finds himself in the deep water of adoration for God. And in verse 33 of chapter 11, he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen it's not this idea that God's unknowable. It's just this idea that when we come to know God, we start to know something of how infinite he is. This idea that his ways are above our ways and past finding out. And then uh, this happens in the fullness of time. These gospel truths, this uh, redemption, it happens in the fullness of time. And when is the fullness of time? Well, it might, you might start to think, well, that's sometime in the future. But if you turn to Galatians uh, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, you'd see that God sent his son when? In the fullness of time. You see, see these gospel realities are here for us now. They're there for the Ephesians At the time when they come to know and receive Christ, because Christ had already come, uh, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And certainly there's future realities to all the works of Christ, but uh, there's also this great present reality. So how do you partake in the fullness of time? Well, it's by this inheritance. It's by receiving the inheritance that we have in Christ. It says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And that leads us into this third um, page, which is a work and a picture of, of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the one that brings us into that union with Christ. You see, in Christ is the inheritance, and it's the Spirit that gets you there. It's the Spirit that brings you into this relationship with Christ. And on the, on the page, that third page, the work of the Holy Spirit in our photo album, right in the center of the page are your names, believers, Uh, believers the center page and it's got this big seal on it that says in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit you see it's the spirit that seals us to the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, we talk about you know things like what's the the guarantee of our salvation Um, certainly there's a lot of things that uh, won't get it that we won't get into heaven without you can't go to heaven without being justified Um, The writer of the Hebrews say without sanctification or holiness, no one will see the Lord. But all of these things stand and rest on that great gospel promise that the spirit has been poured out and unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Faith is a great gospel reality, but it's not our guarantee. Repentance is not our guarantee. Uh, regeneration is not our guarantee. Certainly, if you have these things, don't hear me. Certainly, if you have, hear me wrongly. Certainly, if you have these things, that's, you, that's a uh, smaller guarantee. But the larger guarantee, the grand guarantee in Paul's theology, is the work of the Holy Spirit sealing men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, In Him. You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So, how do you get the Spirit if that's the great uh, seal of our inheritance? Well, you hear the truth, the gospel's preached. Uh, you turn to Christ. You know, if if you have any inclination to turn to Christ, the Spirit most likely is already working in your heart. The Spirit's already intimate and in sealing believers, or sealing men and women to Christ to make them believers. And that seal is placed upon men and women like you and like me. And Paul doesn't end this... Uh, glorious section, this, this glorious picture book, this glorious photo album uh, with uh, the, the work there. He actually ends it. It's almost like you get to that, uh, the end of the book and you turn it over and on the very back side of the cover it says worship. It says to the praise of his glory. You see that's where Paul goes again and again and again. The Father did this. The Son did this. The Spirit does this. And it's all to the praise of his glory. Do these things move your heart? Like, does the work of God move your inner man? Like, that's a question we need to all ask ourselves. Does the work of God in salvation and redemption, does it move your inner man I think it's what we need. You see the, the need that we all have uh, is to worship God for this redeeming work, which really just means we need the Trinity. Uh, there's this uh, theologian from the fourth century that has this quote that I, I think it's a it's semi-famous quote, but it's just I think it's really helpful for just considering uh, God the Trinity. Uh, a man by the name of Gregory of Nazianzus, he writes this. He says, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as a whole. And my eyes are filled And the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. You know, sometimes I think in reading some of the the really old writers, I think they got the three better than a lot of us get today. You know, sometimes we just think of God merely as, as the one, which certainly God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship one God, but one God who is triune. So let us never merely think of God in a, a, a worldly, philosophical, merely abstract way, but the way that the Bible speaks about him. As Father, Son, and Spirit. So I think what we need in our age is to remember the Trinity. I think it's our great need. And I think it if we really see this, it's almost like Paul is uh, conducting a worship service. As he's working through these passages, he's worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit again and again again. And again, and he's, in his mind with these Ephesians who are given to uh, a lot of idolatry, and now they've been brought in, he, and he's ministered with them uh, for a handful of years, his prescription for them is to worship the Trinity for what he does. And I think it's the prescription to all believers throughout their whole life. So when was the last time that you just sat and considered the Trinity? Uh, Maybe some homework for all of us tonight is go home and make yourself a cup of tea, read Ephesians 1, and spend 15 or 20 minutes thinking about our triune God. And that it would lead you to worship, worship, worship. To glory, glory, glory. To have full adoration of who God is and what God does. So can we try to do that together as a congregation? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you and we adore you. Um, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we thank you for saving us, uh, for redeeming us, Lord, who were once rebels against you. Uh, Yet, Lord, uh, while we were not lovers of God, uh, you loved us and your love is even rooted in eternity. And we thank you, Lord, that in time you have brought us into a relationship with you that we can now tonight gather together uh, in word and spirit and worship you, our God. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us and help us to consider you, that we would put aside ourselves and consider you, our God. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we thank you for first loving us. In Christ's name, amen.